Welcome back to The Inspired Attorney. I'm Sharon V, and today we are continuing our conversation with Joshua Walker, who shares with us how he creates balance in his life, along with how he managed the mental stresses of everything that he saw while he was building the database when he was working on the Rwanda genocide case. We also talk about managing fear. Going back to also what you discussed about the rigidity of the legal field, is this something what motivated you to branch out to your current role or how did that happen? Um, I, again, I love law firms. I loved uh, working in one. I'm not technically practicing law. I'm not practicing law right now, but I love the work. I love that, you know, drafting contracts and stuff like that or, or reviewing litigation stuff is really fun even working on the documents right doc review if you get into the data to me anyway and i'm a nerd but it's actually quite interesting especially if you're doing trade secret cases or whatever um it is way too painful so i think to me it's not necessarily i think this is wrong or i think you're doing this it's always driven by if there's a client with a need then we're not addressing it and in California, about 95% of all legal need, not just from the poor, from the rich, from the middle class, from the poor, like everybody, like unrepresented immigrants, right? Everybody, 95% is unmet. There aren't enough lawyers. And we have like 200,000 lawyers. I'm probably wrong on that. But it's, it's a large number of lawyers in California. And we're failing badly to meet need for legal work. To me, that's like, we've got to use software to like actually scale this thing. How many people can use Google at one time, right? The search algorithm. How many people can use, order something on Amazon? And again, I'm not endorsing any company or anything like that. But if we don't use technology to scale what we're doing, we will be replaced, right? If we use technology and become at least decent, not math, not at software, let's focus on what we should be doing, our, our baking, but let's connect to those worlds, right? Let's use tools that are out there. You can scale yourself up to help a lot more people. For me, it's always been, what does the client need? Uh, I had a, a pro bono project for, or an academic project, I guess, if you will, for the Financial Conduct Authority in the United Kingdom. And we were just advising them on kind of innovation things, ways they could make the compliance burden less. That conversation is driving, I think, a rethinking about how people do regulation. What can we borrow? What analogies can we map? Not from legal cases, but from other fields, engineering, math, software. What things can we borrow to make the regulatory process better, um, more efficient, and more just, right? So it has to be client-driven um, in the book. And again, I'm not trying to, to schlep it, but it's it's important. There's a, there's a concept called Eden, E-D-E-N. And that the first, you know, other than, than the, the element that's really most core is design, begin with the end user in mind. I think if you do that, it can drive all the other things and it will help you find support financial and otherwise for all the things you want to do. So if you, if you begin with the end user in mind, the client in mind, which we have a duty of zeal to do, that I think opens up doors to uh, explore other things. You shouldn't look at technology or even process innovation as a good in and of itself. Like, what's the bottom line? Is it helping someone or not? That to me is the, is the core. 
are you helping someone? And, and it doesn't matter whether it's pro bono, whether it's you work in the government, you're in-house, like who are you helping? Right? Are we the photocopying department? Are, are we the people that just say no to everything? Are the people that say yes to everything, which is worse, by the way? That's much worse. Um, so how can, how can you help someone? Right. If you start there, I think your career is better, but it also, you can reverse engineer the things you need to do to help this person better and then try to cut through the red tape so you can accomplish those goals. I love that. I, I live by sort of that motto. I want to add the most value that I can. And I think that's that beautiful. You and you're, you, yeah, you clearly have a lot. You're thinking about empathy in all these contexts for lawyers and others. And I think that empathy construct is probably one of the most important things that we don't have. It's certainly not taught. I think in business school, a lot of, a lot of the, the sort of the, the psycho business relations and of, of working with people and helping people, that is taught. Like it's very explicitly taught. Um, design certainly, but it, it's not taught in law schools. It's not taught in computer science schools either. Right. But, uh, that's why we're so similar in some ways to see us. Uh, but you're right. Empathy that you exhibit is, is core to doing all those things. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, sure. It's all good. So I want to touch on a little bit of what we've been talking about in terms of like the future. And since the COVID-19 situation is such a huge impact that we're all experiencing right now, what do you see as a great takeaway that we can um, look forward to and moving forward? Um, so first, you know, you've got to start with thinking about a lot of people suffering and this isn't a political comment, right? At all. How can you help? Our nation is so bitterly divided and it's being actively bitterly divided by outside folks. Like literally people are trying to make, what can we do to make Americans hate each other more often? And there's bots, AI tools are out there doing this stuff. It's with COVID, it's with everything else. Um, the crisis it, it, for all, you know, there's a lot of suffering. We're at the beginning of an economic wave that's going to cause harm too. We, we have a lot of uncertainty and we should have an open mind about what will happen. Let's look at the data and evolve. Um, but I think the crisis is actually the best time to innovate because we have to. We may not have a choice, right? We're lucky to have, you know, work and clients and things like that, but we don't know the timing of when that could change. We can't take things for granted and we need to be able to evolve to adapt to that change. And sometimes very, very quickly. How can we as a profession evolve and adapt? Um, there is a massive unmet need right now for legal services. How do you do that when you're just one person? Well, you can collaborate with other people in at least some states. Now it's Utah, Arizona, and California. Hopefully we'll have experiments soon about like, enabling collaboration between software and lawyers. Um, but you can do this today, right? You can find people that are, that are um, doing pretty innovative things and uh, help folks. So um, I don't want to say we should stick to our knitting. Um, I think that is certainly true that we should just, you know, power ahead and persevere, stay calm, carry on uh, to quote the old World War II adage. But I think it is also now time to innovate. Um, when we started Lex Machina, this other company, the first sale was uh, March of 2009, right? It was, that was the bottom of the NASDAQ. And it was actually a good time to start something as difficult as it was. Um, 
I, I don't know why that math works out exactly. There's some complicated reasons it might, but now is actually the time to start something. Um, the key is who are the clients? How can you help them? And their need is greater now, right? Whether it's for insurance or legal services or all these other things. And it's not just companies, it's individuals too. So how do you create structures that are going to help a, a, a large number of people? That's a great lawyer skill thing to do. How do you enable people to reopen safely? How do you create tracking software? We were talking about it a little earlier. How do you create tracking software that complies with civil liberties laws, the privacy laws, right? No one's doing this now because the engineers, for the most part, they don't like us. They don't want the lawyers. They're like, we're like zombies walking around killing everything they touch, right? Is, to use a metaphor that uh, one of my teachers used, he was a federal judge, by the way. So he's, he's into law, but he's like, to a tech company, lawyers are like a bunch of zombies walking around killing everything they touch. That shouldn't be the way. You shouldn't let the engineering arrogance can take us into things that are terrible for the world. But you need lawyers on the design team, not just on the no team. You need like, hey, if we did it this way, this is the pathway we, we could follow. That's something you can do now and today. Can we have lawyers working with the people on COVID response? Can you help people uh, sell things and scale things and license things that are going to help large numbers of people? It's life and death right now. So the need for lawyers, I think, is ever greater. Um, especially because of the crisis. But I think like everybody, we need to take a pause and know there's some suffering. We're going to have bad days and we need to lean on each other a lot more and listen to your podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's for all, all of the above. In terms of leaning on, on each other, we um, you were talking about how you started your career in Rwanda. So how did you deal with the mental stress of the things that you are seeing? Um, that is a great question. And so it was easy to go to Rwanda. It was really hard coming back. And so I was the, I was started as a case manager, just really a paralegal entering data, right? And then became an analyst or acting analyst uh, for the national team. So I saw all of the worst stuff from the whole country. So a million people were killed approximately. Um, there's some, still some uncertainty about the, the precise numbers, but it, it essentially 800,000 to a million people. And you just saw the worst of humanity. You also saw some of the best. Um, one of the people I worked with, um, Amadou Dem was a, was a hero. He was there during the genocide as well as being an investigator. And he went out to the barricades in his UN uniform, but like no real weapons. And he saved hundreds of lives personally, right? He walked out there at risking his own life. He said, don't kill your brothers and sisters. You know, he bribed people to stop them from killing others, did what it took to save people. Like he saved hundreds and hundreds of lives. There are thousands of people there alive right now because of this one person. And so uh, he was one of my colleagues. And I'm like, the lesson from that is when things hit the fan, whether it's COVID or something worse, don't be a jerk. What can you do? Don't go away on your yachts, right? Don't go away your cave. How can you be safe, keep your family safe, but also help people? So psychologically, if you're doing something to help, the the harm you take in psychologically is is less, right? That's the social psychology of these types of things. But it's still there. And it was a war zone. The entire country was traumatized. And how could you feel that day to day? People didn't look when they crossed the street. So death was just much closer everywhere. 
And I was a 21 year old kid at the time thinking, oh, you okay. I had like, I totally had PTSD when I came back. It took me a year to come back. And I think when I went, and I'm sorry, this is too much information, but I think, I think it's important, right? Cause I think a lot of people go through this. People are going to be traumatized by just the COVID stuff economically as well as psychologically. We need to lean on each other. Um, took me a year to come back. When I went to Rwanda, it was, uh, it was a hero complex. I was like, look at me. I'm because this, my college is all about status. I mean, it, it was an amazing place and I'm very thankful, but it was also like, let's see who can be the better saver of the world. So there was a lot of ego involved in going and, and that's okay. It's okay to farm egos as a way of doing good things. It's, that's totally fine. Um, but when I met people who had lost their families and had just, and seeing the, the trauma that people experience, it just wiped that out. I'm like, it's not about me. This is about like, this is about these people going from a sort of a selfish, not narcissistic, but something that's very self-focused mindset to a, how do you help these people, um, was important. But I think my ego got so just wiped out entirely by that, right? It was, it was too much, right? I wasn't thinking about that enough. You need enough ego to, to, as a, for motive power. So I came back and it took me a while to come back. And when you leave the US and you're in a developing country, you just miss like a year, year and a half of popular culture. Like I, I missed Seinfeld. Like I, like I just, I don't remember. I, I didn't have cable for a while in college too, but like I just, there's just chunks of this are missing and you do something. And you come back and you experience something that's very, very intense and you come back. Like nobody cares. Nobody cared. I mean, they might say they would, but they, no one really cared. It was in Rwanda. It was far away. It's very hard for people to have empathy or understand a million people being massacred, right? It just, it doesn't compute and it probably shouldn't. So there was just this kind of disconnect of what had happened. No one cared. Uh, and, and that's okay, right? We're not doing it for, for someone else or something else, but it, it's kind of disconcerting for you. Um, I think it took time. I wrote a lot. I think now you have to understand. I had great friends, right? None of my friends, Greg Gordon, uh, I talked to a lot, uh, certainly at the time. So, it, and he's still in the, the human rights field. He's working on propaganda, actually. So he's still involved in, in some ways in, in this kind of prosecution. Um, I think you have to be much more conscious about this stuff and, and, and actively deal with it and avoid the stigma. I probably had a stigma. I would, I, I don't think I've ever admitted that in public before, but I'm sure I had PTSD just from, cause I, I saw ever, I was the center of the, the database for this prosecution effort. So you have to understand that's going to have an impact. The other thing we did, which is, it's going to sound odd, but, you know, we worked six, day, six days a week for the tribunal and uh, it was very intense and we, it was long hours and whatever, but there was nothing else to do. So you could go to a bar, right? That was kind of a international group bar. You could play tennis, right? It was beautiful, the best weather in the world. It's a beautiful, Rwanda is a beautiful, beautiful country beautiful uh, folks um but you could go to a bar you could play tennis. there's no barnes and noble you know not we don't have barnes and noble now and it, you know they're not enough bookstores now anyway but there was nothing to do and so we ended up i had uh, i'd done acting a lot in college and one night one of my colleagues greg that i mentioned before uh he he said i've always wanted to do two things you know one of them was conduct a mozart concerto the other was 
produce Hamlet, uh, play Hamlet, a Shakespeare play. And uh, it was one of those late night kind of freshman roommate type conversations, right? We didn't know each other. And then anyway, we became, became fast friends. And I go, I don't know beans about Mozart, which has changed only slightly since then. I know Bach a little, Bach a little bit, but, but I, I know Hamlet a little bit. I could, I could maybe help with that. So by that morning, we were producing a play. It was a charity thing for orphans. It's called Actors, Actors for the Orphanet or Actors for Orphans. And uh, it was a fundraiser. And, um, you know, what happened was we had been, we had found out later that, and again, this is a one day a week thing. We're working very, very long hours in the tribunal, but it, it was the only thing to do. There's nothing else to do. And so what we found is that, um, Hamlet and Julius Caesar were the two most studied plays in Rwanda. Why? Because they've been living it. Political assassination after political assassination. The Rwandan genocide started with a political assassination. Someone shooting an aircraft out of the, out of the air. So it started that way, and it became very controversial. And it was a it was it got on the national international press. We had the U.S. embassy helped us put it on. We had uh, the French Cultural Center let us. We had like a nine seven hundred person theater. We took it on the road to Batari. But what being told is like by Rwandans, right? This wasn't some like internal thing, but the ones that said. This, these plays really, they speak to a lot of what we dealt with. And so because we had Rwandans in the cast, we had like 30 cast members, like like a bunch of Rwandan, a bunch from all over the world, uh, England, Europe, uh, uh, Senegal, you name it. And um, we integrated that into the play. So we had an outlet. So a very long way of, of answering question, but I was, I was playing Horatio, Greg was playing Hamlet, and we were doing something to help orphans, right? We do something to help people that have been killed, yes, but it wasn't enough. Like, what do you do about the survivor? There are all these orphans everywhere. And Hutu and Tutsi, uh, the different, different theoretical ethnic groups that, that never really existed. So can you help people, right? That helps you with COVID and with everything else. And I think that's very true. People that, that, that volunteer for the churches, right? That, that go to homeless shelters that do, uh, you know, work at food banks. If you do that, no matter how difficult it is, it actually controls your own pain to help others. You're projecting out the cure to others, but also yourself. Not that we were thinking this way, right? But it was, it was true at the time. We were doing something that was very active, very different than our day to day job, which was, you know, constant trauma. But we were channeling that pain in some ways. And a lot of people, and I don't want to speak for others, but a lot of people, it resonated with people. Um, again, it's very controversial, right? But, and, and it seems odd that we were producing that we, it was the first production of Hamlet in history of Rwanda and it was a war zone, but it worked. Like it was, it was incredible. We were, we, we took the show on the road to the University of Batare. And when Greg, my colleague, did it to be or not to be speech. The entire audience, they must have been studying it the night before because when he said the speech, the, and it's not like audiences here or people, it's, it's interactive, right? The entire audience started saying to be or not to be with Greg. It was the most heart wrenching, like moment of like resonance of any media that I've ever felt. And it was just, it was heartbreaking because the country had been on the brink of death from hatred and planned genocide and the atrocities. And yet we could talk to each other with a play that was hundreds of years old. 
And Shakespeare had never dreamed of a situation like that, right? It, it's it's minimal. You can't minimize a genocide into this, but you can speak to what it feels like as an individual to struggle with. Should I look before I cross the street? Because it's the same thing. And a lot of people had said that, oh, Rwanda, it was some tribal animosity. Complete BS. It was a very organized, very orchestrated uh, genocide. It had been planned in advance very, very carefully by, by many people. And, and again, the evidence continues to prove that out. The convictions prove that out through what the judges have determined. Um, not saying what will happen with any currently indicted but, but uh, unconvicted party. Because we'll see. But, but the evidence was there. So if you can teach people that societies are the same and the things that make assassinations and murder happen in Rwanda are the same things that make them happen in Manhattan, that's going to make things better. Um, so again, it's a very roundabout way of answering your question, but I think if you're active and you do something, and if you have that creative pull, do it. I, I know another guy I work with, brilliant, amazing guy, uh, former banker, he plays guitar, right? And so I think you have to express that and you have to make it a priority and you have to book the time to do that. I haven't been good about, enough about doing that before, but it was important. And you should do it in a way that, that helps people. So again, I know I didn't address your question entirely, but, uh, but try it. You did. And you also opened it up to my next question is how do you create a work-life balance? Because you do have a lot of balls in the air, so to say, and you want to live, you know, this beautiful life that we have. How do you create that balance for yourself? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I struggle with that. Um, so, so going back to the startup, it was, you know, at the time I was working longer hours than I'd ever worked. Um, but I had control over the time. If you're an M&A, it's, it depends on the client and you have to do that. You can't avoid that. Litigation, you actually have more control over the, the stuff, but it's, it's this constant interaction that it's incredibly negative. We've done an incredibly terrible job in the U.S. of creating congeniality in the way we resolve conflicts. We are incentivized to induce and create conflict at CNCs and in you know every silly discovery dispute that we've, we've all gone through them, right? Or you've heard about them if you're a corporate or deal lawyer. It's terrible. So we have to manage this discovery monster better because that, that constant friction, I found it can make litigators show that friction in their daily lives, in their relationships, right? If you look at the divorce rate for litigators, I'm, I'm sure it's pretty high. Corporate M&A, it's like, in theory, it's a win-win at the end of the day. There's conflict, but it's a win-win in theory. Litigation, it's this fighting and that zero-sum element uh, induces and encourages bad behavior and, and very negative, um, non-work-life balance. The startup, which was, it was a litigation analytics startup. So we were looking at things, but you, it was much more creative. And we are missing that. Like when you write a great brief or when you write a good provision in a, in a deal or you put the deal together or you, you, you sagely advise your client, that's a creative, a wonderful thing. If you can do that, you know, times a million, right, using software and other things, that will create not work-life balance per se, but uh, equilibrium. I think it creates equilibrium. Um, I'm I'm closer to uh, doing, you know, deal stuff now, not for legal, but for for risk management and analysis. 
I think that that re- will reduce the equilibrium in some ways, but you just have to, I think you have to use acceptance um, if you're in a space that is constantly doing deal work and then find space that you don't. So my religion, one day of the week, I am offline, period, at least, right? And so that's that's probably my local equilibrium. Every other time I should be on 24-7. And it's a, in theory, there's an infinite amount of work to do. I try to carve out space for conversations like this for academic and writing work because it's important to me. Um, what I haven't done is the the creative side, really the pure creative side, but hopefully one day soon. If you were to look back at your career, what is some advice you would give to yourself? I would say find an equilibrium between change and constant structure, right? So you have to grow and you have to be an open-minded, but you also have a, have to have a constant structure. I think that structure is as important as, as the change. Just like in our little micro example of like hourly billing versus other things. So you have to have both. Maybe your constancy is you have the same partners. Maybe the constancy is you're in the same legal domain. Um, maybe the constancy is you focus on legal AI, right? Or something weird. Um, I feel like the job I had in Rwanda has been the same. I've been doing the exact same thing just for different entities for X number of, of years. Um, I would probably write a book about what I would do differently or, or what I could know in advance. Um, and I think there's, that's a complex subject. A lot of it is about how do you manage different relationships? How do you manage the right level of trust, right? To have enough, but it has to be balanced, right? It can't be sort of binary, but there's a book, you know, fortunately I, I, I would have read my book, you know, 20 years ago and, and probably been way far ahead in every respect. Um, that's one of the reasons I'm writing it because I'm, I'm writing to myself X years ago, right? I, I really am. You don't have to make the state. Our, our VCs used to say, make new mistakes, learn from us. So I can't go back, but I can write a book that can talk to where I was when I graduated from law school. That's the point of it. And it's stories, right? Um, there's theory in there, but it's also stories. Anyway, I haven't answered your question at all, but the, the best I can do, I think sure it is, is to talk to myself who I might have been there. The other thing I would say is I've probably done a decent job speaking to the future, trying to create artifacts that are useful over time. In some ways, you know, you've got to focus on the present too. And that's something I also have to have to do more of. So I guess that's my advice to myself is focus on equilibrium understand you're on the right path, that there is change that has to take place in the thing, but also find equilibrium to find that constancy, that that kind of magic balance, if you will. For sure. It's definitely so important because it's so easy to look towards the future. But then when you're so busy focusing in the future, you miss that present moment, which is just so beautiful because the future is not granted right. to you. That's right. So you have to be in the moment, focus on this thing, focus on the, the one thing you have control over, but, you know, again, you can, you can map out a destination and live it in that moment. And that's the paradox that we've got to embrace. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you have any advice for people who are starting law school or graduating law school, especially in this time? Yeah, I, I think the, the first bit of advice is take a, take a breath, right? It's going to be difficult, prepare for difficulty, but it's also going to be a time of change, which plays to your advantage. Right. You're going to be more dynamic than a lot of lawyers that graduated 20 years ago. You just are because things have changed. 
But don't lose faith in what you learned in your first few days of classes in there. It's, it's going to be something that's relevant for all time. And you don't have to become a software expert or an AI or a data person or whatever. You have to be able to port to different areas, though. That's the difference. Can you talk to a data scientist and have some rough idea of what they're doing? Can you talk to a psychologist, a, a team team organizer? You need to be able to interconnect with heterogeneous talents and diverse backgrounds. Even if even if you just want to do, I want to draft wills or I want to do X, Y, Z, there is a place for that in some way, most likely, but you won't know how. You won't know exactly the framework it'll be. It might be you're drafting one and then the software does part of it. Or the software does part of it and you do the finishing either way, probably more the latter. I think, so I would take a few classes that are not in your standard toolkit, like Stanford. And again, every, every school has strengths and weaknesses. I think one of the things that, that Stanford Law is doing well is they've got design classes. The dean restructured the, it used to be the law school was in a semester system and everything else was quarters. So you couldn't take classes across things. Now they can take a business. They changed it. This one dean changed it. And it was incredibly painful. But now you can take the business school class that you've probably taken about psychology of teams and how to manage people and how to think about that, right? Uh, you can take uh, other schools are trying to do that too. You can take a data science class. You can take a C and you'll probably take classes with people in the law school about, you know, how do you create a social application that have, that produces COVID risk, but is also privacy compliant, right? You need the lawyers and the engineers in the same team. So, so take a few of those classes. And if you haven't, read a few books. I learned math from reading history because I'm a, I'm your old school liberal arts person. So do what you need to do so you can speak to those things. You don't have to write programs. You have to know enough about it that you can ask good questions to the program makers and interact with them and leverage what's out there, which is getting better and better all the time. Like there are so many different data analysis tools and empirical data tools and, and, and psychology tools and things like that. A business tools out there to make your life easier. You just need to know enough to, to know when to use them and to not lose your core, which is the core legal expertise. Um, anyway, did I address your question at all? Yes, 100%. So as we close this out, I do have one final question for you. And that is, what advice do you have for your peers or wishes that you have for your peers to express? Um. I think the main advice is don't give into fear, right? There is the, uh, I, I'm going to reveal how nerdy I am, but I'm going to quote Dune, the sci-fi novel. And I, and I can't read them so much because there's actually, there's too much death in a lot of those books. And, and for someone, it's theoretical for most sci-fi fans, but they say something in, in Dune that's great. And they say that, you know, fear is the mind killer, right? I must not fear. I must not give into that. When you're afraid, and there's there's psychological research that indicates this, when you're afraid, your mind sort of starts to cramp up and close, and you become less and less creative. But it's the creativity that's going to get you out of a bind, whether it's economic, a health bind, adapting to whatever the situation is in your city, in your country. So don't fear. We pitched this change. I was on a task force in California that pitched, let's look at some pilot programs to... Uh, look at how to use software in the legal profession to help more people. And there was a massive fear response or a competitive threat response from certain groups of attorneys. And it was like, oh, you're going to make 
you can have software giving immigration law advice to people and it's going to do terrible things or you're going to help Amazon take over the legal profession. I'm like, look, Amazon's going to take over the legal profession now, right? We're sitting on our duff, not doing anything and burying your head in the sand is just going to make it more likely and it's going to keep constraining. Legal industry is shrinking relative to what it should be, right? It should be like five times as big as it is now, given demand, need, how valuable your services and the services of people like you are. Like, we need to actually think about doing real projects that are going to help our clients. Clients are, are, are not hiring you, big law firm or other people or peer, because they can do it internally. Contract review. Contract review inside the companies. You know who does that? Not lawyers, right? Because we're too expensive and we stop everything as opposed to just managing, managing risk. Um, you know, processing, but without, you know, this, this binary kind of thing of like, yes or no, it's got to be, there's a risk here. Here's what could happen. Let's cut the line here. But it's not like, it's not like everything is a no. Um, so I think if you give into fear, it, it's, it's a mind killing situation. Um, if you balance kind of your analysis of risk with, you know, your core, you know, your core goals with the potential for innovation with huge upside, right? There's 95% of the consumer market is unmet in the state of California. There's probably more in other states, right? And then let's not talk about, let's talk about the rest of the world. There's enormous opportunity out there, but if you're afraid, you're never going to see it. It's going to just seem like everything's collapsing around you. And so I think that that fear management is the most important thing we can get out there to, to, to deal with. If we're not afraid, we'll innovate our way around these things. Um, if we're afraid, we'll just, there's a sort of a collapsing effect. Yeah. That's well, my two cents. Thank you so much Thank you. for being a part of the Inspired Attorney and sharing your insights with us. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure and I hope it's been helpful to people. I'm looking forward to seeing you guys on the next episode.